Well, this morning, our topic is Paul in Ephesus, Acts 19, verses 11 through 41. So let me just give you a few words of introduction first. In this session, we will continue the teaching on Paul's third apostolic journey. When the biblically literate people in the synagogue became combative about this teaching about the kingdom of God, he withdrew from them. Taking his disciples, he taught daily for two years. Perhaps it was in this setting that he gave his disciples the whole counsel of God. The teaching was so transformative that in the lives of the disciples that the book that Luke stated of these people in Ephesus in this study group, from them, all that is all without distinction, I think, is the sense of all here. All the residents of Asia, both Jews and Greeks, heard the word of the Lord. Now, can you imagine that from a, a study group, a discipleship group could be used with such power to impact the region? It wasn't just the city of Ephesus where they were meeting. It's all of Asia. Asia was a prominent, uh, the Ephesus was a prominent city in Asia, so a very influential city. And now yet they yet they reached in, out from Ephesus into Asia. And the only way, the vehicle that we can see is these disciples were going out, perhaps because they lived in various settings in Asia, and they were so infected with Christ that they couldn't help it. They were contagious for Christ. The power of discipleship to evangelize in Acts 19 is similar to the incident of Acts 6. In Acts 6, you have the first ecclesia with a problem. It was a food distribution problem that when they used the C4 principle to identify who was to resolve the problem, the problem gets resolved. And then something incredible happens. Evangelism happens. So let's just see from Acts 6 verse 7 what Luke says about that. So the word of God spread. And the disciples in Jerusalem increased greatly in number and a large number of priests, some of the hardest to bring to Christ, became obedient to the faith. That was the byproduct of, dis of disciples doing what they were called to do. So in both Acts 6 and Acts 19, discipleship empowered evangelism. The word of God is powerful and efficacious to produce disciples who are contagious for Christ through their work and their words. Evangelism based on words alone without works is impotent, but evangelism based on discipleship is potent. It accomplishes its purpose. It is efficacious. Paul spent three years in Ephesus, longer than any other place that he went on his apostolic journeys. His pattern for living was consistent. He would go to a place. He would support his own needs. He would teach about the kingdom of God in the synagogues among the people who are biblically literate. And he taught the whole purpose of God, particularly when he did the two-year discipleship program. We can imagine meeting every day for two years with the Apostle Paul, probably something like four hours a day. And that's after he's probably already worked a half a day. But you're meeting with him, and he's unpacking all of the Old Testament in light of the truth that Jesus is Lord and Christ, explaining what that meant, explaining what this New Testament ecclesia was about. So he taught publicly and in homes. He conducted this, this program for two years, this two-year discipleship program, and, and all the time he's taking care of himself, never seeking support from anyone else. 
What an amazing example. Paul was clearly not doing what he was doing for money. In the remainder of the book of Acts, there are three movements. We're going to talk about these today. The first one reveals the impact of the divine power that's manifested through Paul. Christians displayed their faith by willingly sacrificing costly literature that was was incompatible with the faith. In other words, you're going to see when people are convicted by the truth of Christianity, it changes their lives. It changes what they do, what they read, how they entertain themselves. Secondly, you're going to see get a glimpse into Paul's life as a strategist, as a planner, and how he functions. And finally, you're going to you're going to see what happens when there's a riot, a riot caused by Christians functioning as Christians. When Christians start living Christianly, they start using money wisely. They stop doing foolish things like supporting. Uh, industries that do not support the cause of Christ. So back then, that was they they stopped buying personal idols. Today, we would stop supporting the entertainment industry. We would probably stop supporting the media that is so anti-Christ. We would stop supporting companies that are clearly adversarial to the cause of Christ. We would start doing those things, and we would very likely to have a situation like what happened in Ephesus. There would be a revolt on the part of the people who are now being economically challenged by the Christian lifestyles that more and more of the Ephesian people were living. So let's walk through this, and let's see what we can learn from these great movements of God in the first century. So first we have the word of the Lord flourishing. This is Acts 19, 11 through 20. The scripture reads, God was performing extraordinary miracles. That word miracle is dunamis, which is means an uh, acts of power by Paul's hands. And specifically what was happening was that even his face cloths and aprons that had touched his skin were brought to the sick and the diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. Now, this is not the first time in, in biblical the biblical record that uh, in, inanimate objects are used or as agents for healing or exorcism. Uh, you see, for example, in the Old Testament, in the case of Elijah and Elisha both, they used a cloak to part the Jordan River. You see that in 2 Kings 2, verse 8, and 2 Kings 2, verse 14. So there we have Paul's garments that apparently were part of his work as a tent maker, you know, his sweatband, his apron, and people were taking those and passing them around, kind of like you would today. You know, if you uh, go to a sporting event, you would covet getting a, some kind of uh, something from a player. If you got a helmet from a football player or a cap from a golfer or a baseball signed by a baseball player, those are treasured objects by people. Well, in the first century, they were treasuring these things that touched the Apostle Paul, and God was using those. And keep in mind, it was God that was healing, not Paul. God was using those to heal people, and this is very similar to what he did with Jesus. Remember in Acts 2, it says Jesus his himself as a person, as the son of God, and his message were validated by supernatural acts. So Paul himself as an apostle of Christ and as a messenger of the truth of Christ is validated by God's supernatural works. Verse 13. Now you can imagine some people are going to get jealous about this. So some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists 
exorcists are obviously self-proclaimed because they really can't exercise. You need the power of God to do that. So they're, they're false. They're pseudo-exorcists. So they're also attempting to pronounce the name of Jesus over those who have evil spirits. And this is what they said. I command you by the Jesus that Paul preaches. So they came up with a little ditty, a little saying, and tried to use this. So now we get a glimpse into one scenario where they tried to do this. So seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish high priest, were doing this. On one occasion now, they approach a man, apparently in some kind of home setting. I presume it was a home. And the evil spirit answered them. Notice it's not the man that's demon-possessed that answered them. It's the spirit answering them through the man. He said, I know Jesus, that word gnosko, it means to know. It's the basic word for knowing. The knowledge that we are called to have, according to Peter, in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, the knowledge we're called to is epigenosco, more intense, precise knowledge. So the knowledge that this demon has of Jesus is not, not salvific. It is not true relational knowledge. It's just, I know about him. And then he says, I recognize Paul. But who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all and prevailed. That is, he beca- that is the, the demonically oppressed man became strong against them so that they, that is the sons of Sceva, ran out of the house naked and wounded. So this is an amazing thing. If there's something powerful here. You're seeing that it's not enough to say the word you have to be empowered by the Spirit of God for the Word to have power. So it, it's a powerful picture of how the false church functions. The false church can say things that sound right, but they have no potency to deliver. Going on from there, verse 17, when this became known to everyone, now this word pas is the Greek word for all. It shows up numerous times in numerous settings. Uh, sometimes it's, it's translated everyone, uh, as well as sometimes it's translated all. So in this case, everyone here who lived in Ephesus. So the everyone is not necessarily everyone literally. It can be used in hyperbole. It can be used to mean everyone without exception. It can mean that. It can mean everyone without distinction. So in this case, it seems like uh, the, the all is used as everyone without distinction because in a few words later, he said, all who lived in Asia, both Jews and Greeks. In other words, no distinction between Jews and Greeks. All Jews and Greeks both heard this. So I'm going to say everyone here who lived in Ephesus, which means there was a sample of Jews and sample of Greeks, all without distinction. And it's used to say that it was widely understood and heard. They be- And basically, they became very fearful in the sense of the fear of the Lord. And the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high esteem. The high esteem means it's worthy to be praised. And many, and in this case, the word many is not, not pos, it's, it's polus. And many who had become believers, and that is believers in the fact that Jesus is Lord in Christ, came confessing, and that is they're confessing openly with joy and disclosing, as an angel would declare a message, their practices. That word practices is praxis. 
And our practices reveal our worldview, our lifestyle. So their lifestyle was incompatible with being a believer in Christ. So what should they do? Well, they were convicted. Now, it's very easy to get into condemnation. Now, we as Christians know we have, there is no condemnation in Christ. Condemnation is a tool of the enemy to, to, to discourage us and to distract us. We need conviction. When we become convicted, we openly confess with joy our sin, and then we begin to deal with it. So in many of those, and not that everyone did, but many of those who have practiced magic, and the word magic here is interesting because um, it can be understood as a busybody. A magician is someone who's not doing what they should be doing. They're busy doing things they shouldn't be doing. A busybody. <clears throat> they, th these people that were doing this, they collected their books. The word book there is biblios. Um, of course, the Bible is the biblios. So, but there are other, other biblios that are not uh, scriptural writings. So they collected these things that were anti-Christian, and they burned them in front of all, pas. We don't know who all that is. It doesn't tell us if it's all without exception or all without distinction, or maybe it's just a hyperbole, meaning a lot of people saw this and understood this. And they, it was such a big spectacle, they calculated their value and found it worth to be 50,000 pieces of silver, which sounds like a lot of money. Apparently, there was a huge bonfire burning parchments and documents that were counter to the truth of the book of Scripture. In this way, the word of the Lord, the truth of the word of the Lord, it says oxiano. That means you grew and prevailed, which means it became strong. That is, people were beginning to hold on to it. It was shaping their life, defining how they lived. So that's the word of God flourishing. So that's the first movement. So now that we're going to take a little interlude here before we go to the last movement, we're going to take a look at Paul's planning process. So we have just a few verses here. So after these events, you know, basically the events he's talking about were number one was the two-year discipleship training process that that spread the word throughout all of Asia. And then you have the confirmation by the supernatural signs and wonders that were cl clearly being distinguished from the false people trying to imitate those signs and wonders. And that went deeper in convicting people. And now people are, are repenting at the level that they're getting rid of parchments and things that are anti-Christian, getting more and more grounded in Christ, more and more walking the reality of being in Christ. So those are the events that have happened. So Paul now resolved by the Spirit. That's very important. Paul is going into a planning process, and it's very clear that process is going to be governed by the Holy Spirit. Now, if you know James chapter 4, verses 13 through 17, which I trust you do, you know that's a very unequivocal text about strategic planning. It says without equivocation that planning is a process of discerning the will of God no matter what you're planning. And it even uses the illustration uh, from the marketplace in James 4. If you're <clears throat> figuring out, okay, where we, we're going to go someplace, we're going to do something and make a bunch of money. That's what's called a business plan. And James is very clear. You, you're arrogant the way you're approaching this. You think it's all about you and making your money. That is not what it's about. It's about discerning the will of God. Well, Paul is clearly 
clearly seeking the will of God. He's resolved by the Spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and to go to Jerusalem. And after I've been there, he said, it's necessary for me to go to Rome as well. So he's mapped out where he thinks he needs to go. So this is done by seeking the Lord. Clearly, he's praying, looking at what could be do, do, done and discerning what should be done and committing that to the Lord. And he's going to now send out two emissaries to prepare the way. So he sends Timothy and Erastus. Erastus was actually the treasurer from the city of Corinth who had become a traveling companion with Paul. And he sent them out to Macedonia to prepare the way. They were his front people, and he stayed in Asia for a little while. Now, the reason he stayed in Asia was because there's going to be a big event coming up. You're going to see how the Christian lifestyle not only leads to people sacrificing the things that impair them from living out the Christian lifestyle well, it changes the economics. It changes how Christians live economically. So let's take a look at this, which is the last section. This is verses 23 through 41. About that time, there was a major disturbance about the way. Now, remember, the way is a reference to Christianity, to a Christian lifestyle, to the truth about the kingdom of God that Paul is teaching. That's what the way refers to. You see, it refers to a way because Christianity leads to a way of life. Christianity is not a ticket to heaven. It is a transformed life to be lit, to live in alignment with the will and ways of God. For a person named Demetrius, a silversmith who made some silver shrines of Artemis, he provided, this provided a great deal of business for the craftsmen. So he was one of a number of craftsmen that made these personal idols, and all of a sudden their business is dropping. There is a recession in the idol business. So he began to gather his brethren. He assembled them as well as the workers engaged in this type of business. So we've got to, he pulls together this group of people that have common interests. They're all being financially impaired. He said, man, you know that our prosperity is derived from this business. You see in here that not only in Ephesus, but almost all of Asia, this man, Paul, has persuaded and misled a considerable number of people by saying that gods made by hand are not gods. Now, Paul was praying, so I'll be saying that. That was probably very, very true. He's making it very clear that the man-made gods are not gods at all. Idols are not gods. So not only do we risk run a risk that our business will be discredited, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be may be despised and her magnificence come to the verge of ruin. The very, the very one all of Asia and the world worship. So they take their economic problem and they try to make it a religious problem because look, it's disparaging our great goddess Artemis. The Artemis is the Greek name for the Roman god Diana. So here's what uh, Dente Wright says about Artemis. He says, Artemis is the Greek name of the Roman goddess Diana. She was the most powerful divinity in the area. In the past, a meteorite had smashed into the surface of the earth somewhere near Ephesus, and the local people had regarded it as a gift from heaven. A statue, though presumably not very lifelike, of the goddess herself. The temple of Artemis was massive, and her cult, run entirely by female officials, was the religious center of the whole area. Images of Artemis, large and small, dominated the city. 
That's how Demetrius made his money, making these large and small images. Archaeologists have found dozens of them. So this was a real and a verifiable, archaeological verifiable reality that this was going on in Ephesus. So basically when, when he's presenting this truth and presenting this risk, it's very Machiavellian. It's just like this is a really, this is a big problem. Now keep in mind what's driving this is mammon worship. But women worship doesn't get that much attention. What really gets attention is when you think your idols are at risk. So when the crowd hears this, they're filled with rage and begin to cry out. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with confusion. So notice now you had an organized group coming together and with some unity. And as soon as they began to try to expand this thing, and get other people involved, then you have confusion and chaos. There's, <clears throat> so the city's filled with confusion, a rush altogether into the amphitheater, which I understand can hold thousands of people. They drag along Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, who are Paul's traveling companions. So apparently they grabbed a hold of a couple of Paul's traveling companions. Although Paul wanted to go in before the people, the disciples did not let him and even some of the provincial officials. In other words, these were chief officials of Asia who were friends of his, sent word to him, pleading with him not to venture into the amphitheater. So it's a very dangerous situation. And so now let's go take a look in the amphitheater and see what's happening. Verse 32, some were shouting one thing and some another because the assembly was in confusion and most of them did not know why they had come together. This is so picture of the spirit of Antichrist. You know, he has enough, enough wisdom to, to sow some order into some rebellious people and they can start something, but very quickly it goes into confusion and chaos. Nobody knows what's going on. Everybody's got different agendas. It's just a mess. So now the Jewish people are very concerned about this because they believe that the, the Greeks are going to accuse them of causing their financial problem. And even and that financial problem is trying to be couched as a religious problem. So they're going to try to defend themselves. So some of the Jews in the crowd gave instructions to Alexander <clears throat> to, to go out there and they pushed him forward in the front. So they put him forward to be able to say something. So he's motioning with his hands. He's wanting to make a defense to the people. He's wanting to give an apologetic, explain. He's trying to say, it's not us. It's this guy, Paul. That's who you need to be focused on. But they don't even listen to him because he's a Jew. So they immediately dismiss him and they all shout in unison for two hours. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So they can unify around that. Sounds like the, a lot of the rallies we have today, you can, they, can, they can come together and sing or they can, they can chant, they can utter a statement, but most of them there don't have a clue why they're there or what's really going on. So finally, the town clerk, he comes in. He realizes this is really out of order. So the town clerk comes in, he calms down the crowd, and he said, people of Ephesus, what person is there here who doesn't know that the city of Eph the Ephesians is the temple guardian of the great Artemis and of the image that fell from heaven? That's a rhetorical question. There's no one. Everyone knows that. Everyone is aware of that. So, therefore, since these things are undeniable, they're unequivocal. Everybody's aware of these. You must keep calm. 
You see, there's nothing here that's threatening that thought. You must not do anything rash, for you have brought these men who are not temple robbers or blasphemers out of God, out of our, uh, of our goddess. So he's referring apparently to the people that they pulled in with them, the followers of, of, of Paul, that they thought, you know, they were representatives of Paul because they really believed Paul was the problem, even though the Jews were concerned they might be blamed for it. And what the what the clerk is saying is maybe maybe not totally true, because I think he's trying to whitewash it. We're getting a little propaganda here, because the reality is Paul is saying he is blaspheming their gods. He is saying they're not gods. That would be blaspheming. They're not temple robbers. That's probably true, but they are blaspheming and saying there is no such goddess as as Diana or as Artemis. That doesn't exist. So if Demetrius, he goes on, the clerk continues, so if Demetrius and the craftsmen who are here have a case against anyone, whether it's Jews or Paul, whoever it is, the courts are in session, and there are pro-councils. Pro-councils are appointees, political appointees, from the Senate in Rome, which is the major body. Just like in the United States, we have a Senate. It's a major legislative body. They had the same thing in Rome because the United States is modeled after the Roman government in many ways. So these proconsuls are there, and they have court. They're in session. So you, you can bring charges against whoever you want into the courts. But if you seek anything further, in other words, if you go outside the bounds of the law, you know, you're out of order. So that this matter must be settled in a legal assembly. This is a really interesting term here. The word legal means bound by the law. And assembly is the word ecclesia. So you can see right here, he's using the common term they would use. An ecclesia is not a religious body. An ecclesia is a body that's assembled by the leaders, the proconsuls and other leaders to solve a problem. So we have we think of a jury, for example, today when we have a, a civil trial or a criminal trial, either one, we have a jury that makes the decision. That jury is like an ecclesia. Okay. If you have a school board, the school board has governing jurisdiction over the school. That's like a ecclesia. Or if you have a zoning council or a zoning board in your city, that's like an ecclesia. They make zoning rules for the city. Okay. So it doesn't matter what the issue is for the community. It's to be done by law through ecclesias that are overseen by proconsuls. So this was the way it was. This was the tradition. So it's so interesting that see Jesus uses this word to talk about, about what he will build in the New Testament age. He's building a ruling body, a group of people he's calling out to be his ruling agents. I hope you can see this is where Jesus connects with the great, well, what we call the creation mandate, what I call the Great Commission. The Great Commission to me is not Matthew 28. It is Genesis 1, 26 to 28. It is about us being ruling agents to serve the will and ways of God. Jesus, I think, makes that connection very clear by using a word that clearly referred to a group of people who've been called out to rule, ecclesia. That was what was understood by that word. Verse 40, in fact, we run a risk of being charged with rioting 
for what happened today. So there's no justification that we can give as a reason for this discernment. So this, this economic calamity that's led to this pseudo religious riot is out of order. Stop it. And after this, the town clerk simply dismissed the ecclesia. So now he even refers to this assembly that's come out as an ecclesia, clearly not a lawful ecclesia. He's saying, you need a legal ecclesia. You're trying to be an ecclesia, and you've been, you're trying to self-commission yourself. It's out of bounds. Great ex- example of how you can't self-commission. That's not that's out of bounds. You you have to be legally commissioned. And ultimately we know the source of legal commissioning is God Himself. So this is a great picture of how Christianity, when it's lived out, when people are truly convicted of the reality of Christ as Lord and Savior and begin to live it out, there will be economic changes. We will no longer support the cultural idols. The cultural idols of today are things like hedonism, narcissism, and those things drive us. We're all about ourselves. We have this thing called the American dream where it's all about working hard, making money, then then stopping work. So you can do what you want to do when you want you want to do it and nobody tells you what to do. That is an idol of today. The American dream is an idol. You know, being seeking pleasure, comfort, convenience is idle. This is why the money in our culture is going into entertainment, into sporting events, into pleasure, into leisure, all of these things. And we see a, con- a basically an economy that's going deeper and deeper in debt because we're worshiping these idols of pleasure, comfort, convenience. We're narcissistic, humanistic, mammon worshipers. Those are the idols of today and they are pulling us down. When we really get Christianized, those idols will will no longer be funded, and they will begin to die. We'll put the money where it ought to go. We'll have the wisdom of the people of Acts 4. In Acts 4, it's said of those people that they had wisdom to know how to spend money because they had the attitude that it was a privilege to suffer for Christ, and the only agenda was the will and ways of God. And they were unified around that, and when you're unified around that, you will use resources to fund the will of God. You will not use resources to fund idolatry like we do today. So, Lord, may we have grace to hear that one. That's a big one. All right, I just want to give you a couple of more things, a point of theology and a quick application. Um, Today, um, I've I've titled this uh, Theology Demons Trembling, but it's really about music. Uh, The purpose of music in Christianity is given, at least partially, by the Apostle Paul in these words spoken to the Christians, to the Colossian Christians. He said this, Let the word of Christ dwell richly among you in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another through psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. Music should be teaching and admonition, teaching and correction, teaching and challenging things that are out of order. Music should convey truth. Today, however, there are there's many presumed liberties with music, particularly music lyrics, and it's, uh, it's wonderful when the lyrics are unequivocal truth, but that seems fairly rare. Most of the time, they're equivocal, and sometimes they're heretical. 
So let me give you an example of a song that we sang recently. And in this song, it had the phrase, every demon trembles when we proclaim your name. Now, what makes a demon tremble? Is it the word Jesus? Well, remember here, we just read in Acts 19 about the seven sons of Sceva. And you remember, I'll just reread these verses very quickly. Now, some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists attempted to pronounce the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I command you by the Jesus that Paul preaches. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish high priest, were doing this. When they did this to one particular person, one particular demon-possessed person, the evil spirit answered and said, I know Jesus, and I recognize Paul, but who are you? And so immediately, the the man who was demon-possessed jumped on seven men and basically so beat them up and defeated them, they ran out of there naked and wounded. So in this situation, the demon did not tremble in the name of Jesus. Why? The demon was not deceived by seven unempowered men calling on the name of Jesus. Consequently, one demonically possessed man overcame seven exorcists. The demon regarded Jesus and Paul with respect because they were empowered by the Holy Spirit, but not the seven sons of Sceva. Why wasn't the name of Jesus enough as the lyrics of the above song intimate? Well, the empowerment to exorcise demons is the words coupled to the has to be coupled to the internal reality of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Without the Holy Spirit, the name of Jesus off your lips doesn't mean anything. But Jesus and Paul were empowered with the Holy Spirit, but the sons of Sceva were not. An empowered person cannot use the name, unempowered person cannot use the name of Jesus to affect miraculous works. It takes an empowered person who uses the name of Jesus in accordance with the will of God. God has sovereignly chosen to grant his disciples the authority to act as his agents. When they do so, the demons will tremble. Sadly, though, in the music of today, we don't make these things clear. We don't stop and explain the precondition for the phrase that demons will tremble when we proclaim his name. That is only true when it's proclaimed by someone who was empowered by the Holy Spirit. All right, now I want to do an application. Christian economics in a pagan culture. Since the early 17th century, when Francis Bacon postulated that knowledge was neutral, that is, knowledge was valueless, disconnected from a transcendent God, the world has increasingly disconnected from God. In the 18th century, the Enlightenment, the French Enlightenment, was the seminal experience, experiment by a society seeking to define reality without a God hypothesis. Though it failed, the afterglow emerged in the 19th century as secularization that disconnected education from God. Then in the first half of the 20th century, economics and public policy were disconnected from Scripture. And now in the middle of the 20th century, up until now, in the early part of the 21st century, social norms have been progressively disconnected from Scripture. Disconnecting from God means denying God's revelation to mankind most fully given in the Bible. This idea is the essence of pagan culture or humanism. Another way to view a a culture is humanistic. In atheistic humanism, mankind denies the existence and relevance of God. Accordingly, mankind assumes the role of God. When you deny God, you just default to wanting to play God yourself or thinking you can play God yourself and trying to play God yourself. The world is increasingly dominated by humanistic cultures, 
Though about 30% of the global population still claims to be Christian, humanistic cultures are expanding rapidly when the Christian while the Christian influence is declining. This is not new. In the first century, the Apostle Paul lived and worked in a humanistic culture. For example, during his three-year visit to Ephesus on his third apostolic journey, he encountered a culture that created a man-made idol. This is what humanists do. Even though the word of the Lord was, was heard through all of Asia, the culture did not immediately become Christian. There were still a lot of pagans, a lot of humanists left in the culture. And even though God performed many supernatural, extraordinary powers through Paul, healings and exorcism, the culture was still to a large degree humanistic. Attempts to counterfeit the supernatural acts failed, which benefited Christianity because the Lord Jesus was increasingly esteemed. Many became believers in Jesus as evidenced by the transformation of their lifestyles. This was so dramatic that the word of God, Lord, grew and prevailed. Nevertheless, the humanism continued and further manifested through a riot because the Christians were no longer buying personal idols. They were no longer funding the idolatry because it was incompatible with a Christianity. Imagine us, if we got to the place where we no longer funded, uh, funded the entertainment world the media world, the, the industries that were so anti-Christian. Imagine what that would be like. Paul's, Paul's three-year stay in Ephesus was the longest in any one location during his journeys. And from this one, one can, can presume some markers of the growth of Christianity in a society. One can look at just what happened in Ephesus to get some ideas of how you would tell if a society was really beginning to manifest Christ. Number one would be discipleship. We would have real discipleship. Paul had a real intense discipleship initiative. It lasted two years, every day for two years. Can you imagine that? Every day for two years, hearing the Apostle Paul teach the Word of God four to five hours a day. That was very intense training. We don't have anything like that. Even our seminaries don't function like that very well. There might be some of them that come close, but it's the, the normal person doesn't get anywhere close to that. Secondly, you would have repentance from idolatry. Remember, as with Jesus, the Lord validated Paul in his message by miracles. When others tried to counterfeit the miracles, they failed. This further was further validated, validated the word of the Lord and moved people to repentance from idolatrous media, which led to the burning of all these scrolls that were wicked, evil, and lies and deception. The third thing, you have discipleship, repentance from idolatry. Now the third thing is economic transformation. Christianity is so life-defining that Christians stop reading, listening, viewing anything idolatrous. Boy, that would pretty well eliminate most TV programs, most movies, most social media, a lot of books and literature. And those who economically benefit from this idolatry would be very upset and most likely reach, react negatively to Christianity. If Christians displayed the above traits or markers, discipleship, repentance from idolatry, and economic transformation to support the cause of Christ and not the cause of idolatry, if we manifested, though, that the humanistic, hedonistic culture of the world today would be challenged, and it would probably be transformed. One could expect this to, to cause a very negative response from the entertainment and sports worlds and other industries because the, these appear to be these are the ones that, that basically are being supported by the culture. These are the ones that are given over to the spirit of Antichrist today, and they would no longer be supported. May Christians have conviction and courage to be profoundly 
discipled to repent of their idolatry, repent of their humanism, their hedonism, and to align their economics with that which supports the purpose of God, his will, his way, his timing, his glory. May we do that in Jesus' name. Amen.